two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to this episode of The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melley. I'm the Global Head of Research at Barclays. And we're going to continue our series on the economic and market implications of COVID-19. Today, we're going to talk about valuations in the equity market. We've seen a dramatic recovery in equity market prices, despite record high unemployment levels and forecasts for recessions that will be even worse than the global financial crisis. This is causing a lot of confusion to investors. How can markets have recovered so rapidly, despite what looks to be severe economic disruption still affecting people's day-to-day lives? To talk about this, I'm joined today by Professor Robert Schiller. He's an American economist, a best-selling author, and the Sterling Professor of Economics, Professor of Finance, and Fellow at the International Center for Finance at Yale University. Now, we don't usually have guest speakers on the flip side. This is actually the first time we're doing this, and so we figured we'd aim high. Thanks for joining me, Professor Schiller. My pleasure, Jeff. All right. Now, I think we want to talk today about equity market valuations, and you've spent a lot of your career focused on trying to forecast returns in equities, particularly with a, with a, with a long-term lens. And we've seen, obviously, a, a major rally in, in the stock market over the past couple of months. What's your first impression of that? Well, like other people, I was surprised at the intensity of the, rea- of the rally since um, March 23rd. It uh, seemed to be coming at the worst possible time, uh, right when we're having uh, a new epidemic on the growth phase of the ep- uh, a pandemic. Uh, and it was hurting the economy, but nonetheless, the market went up. Uh, and so uh, I've been puzzling over that. It shows to me somehow the power of, uh, of narratives. So one of the narratives that was coming up then is that we'll soon have a vaccine and the whole thing Oof, disappear. Uh, we'll all get vaccinated. That won't be harmful anymore. And they're working so hard on that. That was the story that was going around at that time. Uh, and uh, it has some possibility of being right. Who knows, you know? This, these things don't happen very often in history. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you call it a forecast, uh, that suggests that it's more scientific than is possible in economics like a weather forecast where you have data for hundreds of years on the weather and you, nothing fundamentally has changed so you can predict. I don't know that we can predict. We can look at what people find plausible and apparently a lot of people find it plausible that we'll go right back up uh, in a V-shaped recovery and, that, and therefore they don't want to miss out on the stock market bonanza that's about to come. I'm a little skeptical of that, more than a little skeptical because I see uh, uh, parallels in history that suggest that uh, there could be another drop in the stock market. Another drop in the stock market when a second wave comes out, let's say, or when people start to realize that we're going to have to uh, uh, shut the economy down again uh, and uh, we can't get out of this. Uh, people who read uh, epidemiology they uh, come to a prevailing opinion that this was only the first wave. Don't get too optimistic. And there could then be a major drop in the market. Well, certainly we have to acknowledge the risks that the virus may resurge in ways that cause further economic harm. 
I think that it's probably the case that current valuations don't reflect a return to major lockdowns across wide swaths of the global economy. Uh, but I, I guess I'm less pessimistic about current valuations. And, you know, I think the reason is because investors have to put their money someplace. So look, there's no doubt that valuations are high. We've recovered virtually all of the losses in the stock market that we experienced due to the onset of COVID-19. But at the same time, the alternatives are, are less attractive. So rather than just focusing on the absolute metrics for stocks, I would say, you know, look at what's happened in fixed income. For example, take the 10-year treasury yield. That has fallen by about 100 basis points since the onset of COVID-19. So sure, stock markets might be more or less back to where they were, but the alternatives are generating far less yield than they were before COVID-19. And that's a different lens to look at the attractiveness of, uh, of the stock market. But before we get into this discussion, Professor Schiller, maybe it would be worth getting an introduction from you on the specific measures that you use to look at uh, long-term returns in the stock market. Okay, so the CAPE ratio, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, uh, was created by John Campbell and me in 1988. And uh, it's been around for a while. Actually, we weren't the first to mention the possibility. It goes all the way back to, I think, 1911. Wall Street Journal had an article by somebody recommending something like CAPE. What is CAPE? It's for a stock or a sector or an index. It's price, real price, corrected for inflation, divided by 10-year average of real earnings. Now, it's similar to the price-earnings ratio, but the price-earnings ratio is defined for one-year earnings, typically. Uh, I think uh, one year is too short. You know, you, you have big fluctuations from year to year. Uh, so it's especially important now uh, to switch to a longer earnings average. So we do 10-year average. It's not going to be affected that much by COVID-19. Even if our earnings hit zero, the 10-year average earnings won't be so low. So in a sense, I'm with you, Jeff. When I, I'm looking for when we use the CAPE ratio, we're thinking that maybe we will just be right back onto the old trajectory. But you know, the CAPE ratio was high in the beginning before uh, we started. It was up to 33 uh, in uh, the around the turn of the year, 19 to, uh, at the end of uh, 2019. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, uh, it went way down to almost 20, just, about, uh, just a little above 20 uh, in uh, March of this year. But now it's back up. Uh, so I, I, I stay with the idea that for long-term investors, it's too high to be a big part of your portfolio. Uh, and you might want to consider diversifying to other countries, for example. Uh, like Japan, where the CAPE ratio is only 19, uh, or Europe, where it's only 18, or the UK in Europe, really cheap, 14, well, with plus, uh, a fraction, plus basis point, for a CAPE based on a 10-year earnings. So the U.S. is kind of up there like uh, not, you know, we're twice as high as the UK. Is our prospect twice as good as the UK? I don't think so, actually. <laughs> Another great country. Uh, why not invest there? Also, investing in sectors. Or you can invest in alternatives like real estate. There's lots of alternatives to the highly priced U.S. stock market. Well, one, one uh, I guess, 
a comment I would have about what you just said was you, you made a reference to not knowing when the market correction would happen. But I think there's a difference between uh, a market correction versus just lower realized long-term returns, right? I mean, an alternative scenario would just be that equity market returns are lower than we would have seen uh, in previous periods for the next five to 10 years as companies grow into these right. Kind of issues, well, right? That's right. I, mean, we, uh, I have forecasts for uh, the future of performance of uh, markets. Maybe, maybe we're going to get to those later, though. For the United States, the uh, forecast returns over the next 10 years uh, that we have based on the CAPE ratio is 2.3% a year. Uh, and that's, uh, that's looking pretty good. <laughs> Even now, that's where it is. That's not good by hist history. You know, the 10-year returns has been more like 10%. So it's way depressed, but it's still positive. And the alternatives you might think of going into are, you're right, in the U.S., they're not much better. They're also highly priced, real estate or bonds. Uh, but you can do better. I mean, we have, we have a similar forecast for Europe and for Japan. So Europe has a forecast uh, return of, for the next 10 years of 6.2% a year. And Japan, whose, price, whose CAPE ratio has come way down, from what it used to be, our analysis predicts an 8.4% return. So it's a lot better over there uh, than in the U.S. But I, you know, I wouldn't pull out of the U.S. entirely. Maybe I'm a little patriotic, too, and I want to do that. But uh, let's remember that there are other investments. Within the U.S., I would go for low-cape sectors. Well, I, I think one other issue that I, I think we could talk about is, you know, you mentioned that we uh, should be thinking about long-term returns and certainly that's you know like a lesson from finance 101 that you're supposed to particularly in an equity market be be trying to look through uh uh you know booms and busts and be thinking about about these investments over the long run but i also think that the, these periods of crises can be kind of a strange time to think to think like that so it requires a fair amount of fortitude during a crisis to be w willing to think about long-term returns and in fact Many of the types of investors that we normally think of as being sort of institutionally capable of that kind of thought process have found themselves impaired. So, you know, there's been news reports, for example, about, you know, university endowments where universities are having to draw down on their endowments because of cash flow constraints that COVID has introduced. Um, and, and as a result, you know, an endowment where we would normally think of as being sort of an infinitely lived um, investor and so has a luxury of, of, of a long term focus maybe isn't so uh, capable of doing that after all. You know, I'm just you know, thinking that, that at some level, so, sometimes th these ideas of thinking about long-term returns may be, may be very useful theory, but, but in practice are applicable to a surprisingly small number of investors. It's interesting you bring up the university setting. Uh, universities have acquired billions of dollars of endowments. That's money that they can use for act activities. Uh, but I think uh, we, we have to live with both the short term and the long term. The people who are really long term are the donors to the university. And they, they don't think of themselves as putting out fires. They want to build a new center for something or other that has their name on it or build something that uh, will last for centuries. They, 
uh, if they're retired people looking at uh, transitions in life, they're likely to have a very long-term focus. So a lot of the endowment money is tied up in uh, uh, certain activities of the university, and it's hard for them to uh, deal with the short run. So they're in crisis right now, uh, and uh, it may uh, involve their letting employees go and other such things. You know, we all have to think about both the long term and the short term. And, and you are right that we don't want to overreact uh, to the uh, to the short term uh, movements in the market. Uh, but actually, you know, I, we would have been in sync uh, in March when the when the stock market reached its low recently in this year, 2020, uh, on March 23rd, the CAPE ratio was down to 20. So it was predicting a much higher return at that time. I'm still surprised at how big it was, but uh, I would have been in the market at that point too. Well, I guess uh, the prediction came true. It just didn't take 10 years. It took three months to get all those excess uh, returns, right? <laughs> um, there, there may be more unevenness ahead. Right. Now, I think you mentioned that the 2.3% forecast for, for annual returns for, for U.S. stocks. Um, that's in absolute terms. And, and I had talked about how the comparison to fixed income was an important uh, component to this. And you could do a version of CAPE, right, where we can think about not just absolute returns in equities, but actually returns versus those right. in fixed income, which is sort of the alternative place to put your money. And that does actually look, look reasonably more attractive. Not, not that it looks attractive per se in a historical context, but it does improve the, the attractiveness of equities, right? Yeah, our uh, forecast for the excess return of the U.S. stock market over U.S. 10-year treasuries is based, our forecast is based on two things. One is the CAPE ratio for the stock market, and the other thing is the 10-year uh, the, um, treasury yield corrected for inflation, so it's a real yield. That, are, that regression, that analysis, is even more successful in predicting excess returns. Uh, it's get it's about forty percent right in terms of uh, long-term ten-year returns, uh, and it is predicting a good uh, excess return. Oh, yeah, three point nine percent. Now the uh, actual return on ten years might be negative. Uh, in, in real, that's the worry. You know, pulling it out of the stock market and putting it into long-term treasuries is not so attractive now. Both because they they can have a capital loss long-term bonds as interest rates go up and because there may be inflation. All this effort to stimulate the economy out of this, uh, to get this V-shaped recovery that we hope for, all of that has an inflationary potential. Uh, so we might actually do even worse in the bond market than the stock market. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the world we live in. And I think it's a matter of reality, but you can also do better in Europe or Japan in terms of our forecast. Again, based on both the CAPE ratio and the 10-year treasury. Uh, for Europe, the excess return of stocks over bonds we predict is 7.2% a year for the next 10 years. And in Japan, 9.7% a year for the next two year, 10 years. So that's looking pretty good. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, uh, it's not unpatriotic really to invest <laughs> in Europe or Japan. Uh, they were enemies 
a long time ago. We're all friends now. There's no reason not, not to invest over there. There's an unfortunate home bias that people uh, have. Well, uh, there is a home bias. I'd say that uh, there's possibly more to the valuations of, of U.S. markets than just the home bias of uh, U.S. investors. So, you know, you, you know, you mentioned all of the fiscal and monetary policy support, um, and 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 you know, even the prospects of inflation. That was actually the subject of the previous episode of the flip side, where we talked about inflation or deflation as as a likely outcome from COVID. You know, I think, although I was on the deflation side, I'll acknowledge that there are some risks that were well articulated about the the risks of inflation. But those are that's really the dark side of of the sort of policy support that we have experienced uh, over the last couple of months. The, the light side of that is that all of this stimulus could actually work. And if it works, the recovery in the economy and, and in particular for, in earnings for some of these companies could be very robust. And in that sense, you can interpret these relative valuations across these various economies as a statement about you know, the, the potential growth of, of these economies. So it's, it's not lost on me that, that the US potential growth, at least as estimated by our economists, is substantially above potential growth in both Europe and Japan. All, all three economies are, are suffering from you know, an aging population and some uh, uh, dr other drags on productivity. But you know, we would estimate that the US potential growth is still near 2%, which is almost double what we'd expect it to be in Europe and, and, and even more uh, of, a, of a difference between where we'd estimate it to be in Japan. So you know, I feel like there's there's some element of this where you know the, the the cape regressions are sort of suggesting investments in economies that are facing structural growth challenges which you know there does seem to be something where investors are preferring economies that have the, at least the potential to recover more rapidly and more fulsomely from the covid crisis well i think uh we are different the united states is the center of capitalism uh or you might all put UK in there too, historically. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a certain belief in that, even all over the world. And we now have a, a, a president of the United States who is very pro-business. Whether you like him or not, you might think that uh, the US is a unique place for a stock market to flourish. That's a narrative that is going around. It, it, we we still yeah this nation has a uh, a good history of attracting talent and people who uh, who uh, want to be entrepreneurial. Uh, all these things may uh, uh, I think we're at a a, a turning point. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the COVID nineteen crisis uh, makes us rethink uh, what does the office of the future look like? What does the home of the future look like? What does the university of the future look like? Everything is in a state of flux. It's like a wartime situation. And we might have another uh, uh, miracle after World War II. Remember the Wirtschaftswunder, that's, that's German for economic wonder. Germany, which had been bombed out and destroyed in World War II, re retooled itself in more modern dimensions and had an economic miracle of rapid growth. Well, it's possible that the U.S. will do that too, uh, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, you know, we're not, I'm not. I'm not saying don't invest in the U.S. <laughs> I think there is that potential, and I I have a little of that FOMO, that fear of missing out too. 
Well, I think it's it's animal spirits of a sort or FOMO, but maybe there's something even more concrete to it. So you mentioned looking at various sectors and thinking about you know low cape sectors as attractive uh, at, you know asset to consider for a portfolio. But I would say that there's another sector story here, which is that there's a group of companies that may be very well poised to capture market share as uh, as we emerge from COVID-19. So there's some of the largest tech and uh, and internet companies in the world are in the US stock market. They tend to have very high uh, PE ratios and so probably are contributors to the um, elevated CAPE levels here in the US. Uh, but they're global companies really. And, and I think a lot of times investors confuse the stock market for the economy. The stock market is really the largest companies in the economy. And we've, we've had a trend in the US over the last 20 years where the largest companies have been aggregating more and more market share. I think that, that the experience of COVID where it's put a lot of pressure on small and medium-sized enterprises that don't have the, the cash or the capital resources to withstand this sort of extended disruption in their operations, that those companies could very easily cede market share to some of these largest companies, which were already sort of winners uh, in the in the economy before COVID, and if if that's the case, then you know some of this uh, run up in the U.S. stock market could be um, a statement about the potential future earnings growth once we emerge for some of the biggest cap companies out there, and obviously uh, they have a, a a dominant effect on sort of the indices because that some some of the biggest cap companies are so large that um, that they sort of dwarf other parts of the index in terms of the effect on returns. Uh, yeah, well, some of these largest companies have high CAPE ratios. Uh, so actually, uh, we've used uh, in the, uh, uh, my work with some Barclays people, we've used a concept uh, when comparing individual sectors of relative CAPE, which is uh, the CAPE ratio today divided by a 20-year average of the CAPE ratios. And... Uh, Right now, the sector that looks uh, of the uh, GIC sectors, the sector that looks most underpriced, believe it or not, is communication services. Their CAPE ratio is uh, pretty high, uh, but historically, they've always had a high CAPE ratio. So the com communication services in this month had a CAPE ratio of 34.37. Uh, and... Uh, that's high, that's higher than the average for the market. But if you do relative CAPE, it's only, uh, it's 25% it's below average. Uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, 0.75 is CAPE divided by 20 year average CAPE. So it looks like it, that's a, a good buy right now. And we have to evaluate everything that way. We have to look at a measure of long-term value and compare that with the price. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting because it's 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 also the case that the U.S. stock market is probably overweight that sector relative to some of the other international stock markets, right? So that in, to the to the extent that 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 sector justifiably has uh, cape ratios that are elevated versus the rest of the market, and that that you know that the idea behind relative cape, I guess, is that 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 these are persistent, right? At at you know at some at some level, and and if that's sort of justifiable, then, you know, I think that's gained my point where people think about the U.S. versus some of those other markets, we tend to be overweight some of those higher growth parts of the economy and that it can be difficult to sort of divorce 
the aggregate Kate ratios from uh, from from some of those sectoral differences, which I, I suspect COVID-19 may be actually accentuated. Yeah, I think COVID-19 is not only a recession <laughs> or depression. Uh, it's also a, a time of when people think that things might change a lot. Uh, this came as such a surprise. No one was talking about this uh, as of the end of 2019. And now it has us doing things like uh, spending time on the screen with, you get invited to parties now, which is a Zoom party or, a, or something like that. Uh, and uh, you think, I'm not gonna be going into work. Maybe I won't go back into the office. And who knows what's coming? Uh, so it creates a kind of a, a post-war uh, spirit that we're rebuilding and it's gonna be different now. And that does reward certain companies, uh, uh, especially uh, technologically in, uh, innovative companies, uh, which tend to be in, uh, among them in the consumer communication services sector. Well, I agree. There will be, I think, some big structural changes to, the, to our economy as a result of this crisis. And all of that will be great fodder for future episodes of The Flip Side. I want to thank Professor Schiller for joining me today. This was a great discussion. Clients of Barclays can read our latest take on equity valuations and our recently published global outlook, Turning the Corner. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flip Side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com IB.